Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the new episode of the Low Cost Thinkers podcast. And today we have Dr. Tim Dale from the Political Science Department to join us to talk about popular cultures and political theories. So thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So one fun fact is uh, Tim is actually part of the reason why the podcast was become true because I first had the idea to go with the podcast, but I don't, I don't know who to invite to. I invited to talk on the podcast, and then I talked with Tim, and Tim happened to have a really long list about all the faculties who are doing freshman seminars. So more than half the topic you have listened to it, this podcast so far come from that, directly from that list. So thank you so much, Tim, for sharing that. And I'm pretty sure the new, as a new list, list coming in, you will make more and more contribution anonymously to this podcast. Yeah, and actually, I think one of the really cool things about the first-year seminar program on our campus is that faculty get to talk about stuff that they care about um, they think are relevant to students. So I think it makes a great resource for something like this. Especially it's fun fact, right? You don't have to be that strict on uh, academia. So that would be the, the goal. Okay, so let's start with, you sent me four papers and I kind of organized them a little bit. And how about we start from the popular culture? In one of the paper, you actually said, you try to associate it with a song, which is called The Revolution Is Not Being Televised in 1971. Basically the song was trying to say, if I'm, grabbing correctly. I tried to listen to it on YouTube. It's a really interesting style. Um, he was trying to say that uh, doing politics theories or political actions through popular culture is not a serious political exercise. And in your article, you kind of play with that idea a little bit. So can you just tell us a little bit your view about how political culture plays the political activities? Yeah, well, I think it's a, a, a common uh, conception that um, popular culture and politics are two separate things. So when people go to the movies or uh, watch TV, they're not doing a political activity. That political activity is a kind of a rarefied thing when people vote, um, when they pick it, when they write a letter to a congressional representative or something that they're doing political activity. Um, and so I, I use that song kind of as uh, emblematic of a more academic argument that says that um, when we're participating in popular culture, we're not actually participating in politics. Um, and I, so I take issue with that uh, argument, um, that position, um, to say that I think that there's a lot of really interesting, uh, worthwhile and meaningful political activity that happens in popular culture. Um, and so when we are um, tuning into a television program, when we are watching a movie, when, and then most importantly, maybe when people produce television shows or produce films, um, they're actually engaging in political dialogue. Uh, so much of our politics happens when we're having conversations with people about what matters to us, um, what values we have. Um, that's where our political identities are formed. That's where we get our political preferences. And so um, much of political science kind of takes political preferences as a given, but when we go into a political exchange, we already have our preferences formed. Um, and so what I'm interested in is where these preferences are formed. Where is it that people decide what they value? Where is it that they are um, having conversations with each other about what they value and why they believe what they believe. And so part of my focus on popular culture is um, really a way of talking about how it is that we have conversations in our society about the political preferences um, that we bring into other forms of political participation. Interesting, because you mentioned the political identity. One thing I want to just mention is uh, when I was in China back then, when I was not in the United States, Hollywood movie was probably the first thing to form my political identity towards the, the more democratic systems in America. And that thing has been going on for at least 10 years before I came here. 
So that's why when I came here, I kind of feel like, yeah, voting, I understand democratic, I understand liberal, I kind of understand a little bit. So that's an interesting point. Um, so that, that brings us to the next question that is, you mentioned in the article that popular culture kind of have a natural advantage to reach, to reach different audience than political activities or campaigns. Can we elaborate on that? Yeah, and actually, I think we've seen politics over the last um, decade or so uh, in the United States and around the world um, really tap into this. So um, we see, and some people describe it as the blurring of lines between popular culture and politics. Um, there are many more opportunities to reach people through the mediums of popular culture than they are through traditional campaign modes. And so you have, you know, feature-like films that have uh, political messages in them. You have political campaigns that are um, capturing the power of music or social media to communicate messages. Um, so I think that popular culture um, has a lot of potential politically. It always has. Um, and I think what we're seeing a lot of those lines blurred um, kind of explicitly in the way that politics is run. Um, so I, I think it, that um, these, these lines and distinctions being drawn between um, like the popular culture texts and, and artifacts that we see in the political texts and artifacts, um, that, that that distinction really doesn't hold true um, as much anymore. And may, maybe it shouldn't hold true at all. It's interesting. So if I think about it, right, that you mentioned in the article, that is like, for example, for kids, they don't just form their political identity when they're 18, right? So even just starting from very earlier, things like a teenager or even younger than that, you, you watch Avenger, you watch Batman. It seems like you're watching cartoons made by other people, but there are hidden political ideas, which is assumed to be true at the beginning of the show. So sooner or later, gradually, you kind of form a very complete perspective shaped by almost purely popular culture. I'm assuming nobody, not many people actually bring their kids to campaigns. Right. And even if the kids are at the campaigns, they're probably not paying as much attention as they do to something like uh, Sesame Street um, or Elmo. And I think that that's another area of research that, that I have done. Um, we have, may have a chance to talk about it at some point, but um, I edited a book on Jim Henson, uh, the politics and philosophy of Jim Henson. Um, but we look at something like Sesame Street, where very early on children are taught about the importance of diversity, um, the importance of community, uh, the importance of relying on each other to solve problems. Um, these are political messages. And uh, so we, we it, politics is certainly not something that forms only in adulthood. And there are all kinds of things that are created for children that are communicating the values of our politics, the values of our society. Um, and that's essentially how it is we communicate values from generation to generation. It happens much more in popular culture uh, than maybe anywhere else, except for uh, perhaps at home when the parents are talking directly to their children. Interesting. Have you ever thought about like how social media and the new platform of medias actually delivers individual opinions towards a massive audience, which is kind of like a popular culture in terms of like, uh, for example, podcast or show or live streaming? Right. I, I think that um, there's a there's a upside and a downside to the answer that I'm going to give. Um, I think social media uh, has radically democratized popular culture. So it used to be that only people with money could create popular culture. Uh, you had to have a big budget studio. Uh, you had to have all sorts of resources in order to produce popular culture. And so the gateways into having a voice in popular culture were very specialized. Only people with money had a voice. Um, only people with television studios or movie studios or um, some way to print advertising or print, I shouldn't say advertising, just print newspapers um, were having a voice. 
Um, social media and technology has really proliferated the, uh, the access to create popular culture. And so um, we have uh, that kind of a, a quality of access has created so much and so many voices out there that it's really opened up popular culture to be much more equitable. More people can have a voice in popular culture than ever before. And so you could create a viral video and within a matter of days, maybe even hours, you go from someone that no one's ever heard of to everyone's talking about your ideas. Um, and so I think that is something that uh, social media does uh, for um, creating a better, uh, more democratic way of looking at uh, popular culture. Um, I do think at its worst, probably, and this is what a lot of people complain about, is that with the multiplicity and proliferation of voices, you have a lot of noise. It's hard to break through um, and get your voice heard when there's so many voices out there. So that's one problem. Another problem is people tend to gravitate toward people who agree with them. And so if you have a bunch of different voices happening at the same time, and you only listen to the people that already agree with you, this really works against one of the principles of the public sphere in a democratic society where you have to be exposed to people whose views are different from yours. Um, so to kind of answer your question, I think uh, social media has absolutely changed the relationship between popular culture and politics. Um, I think it's made it more democratic, there's more access, but at the same time, there's the struggle of how do you break through all the noise and also how do you make it so that you are listening or having to listen to people whose views are different from yours. That's very interesting because uh, part of the effort is from you to find the right voice to listen to and try to figure out all the noises. Another one is actually up to the platform to control what they want you to see and what you don't want they, you, they don't want you to see. Or sometimes it's not even intended. For example, like Facebook or anything, it's just like they have an algorithm to determine what they want to recommend to you based on your preference. And it's really not clear how they are recommending things to you and what kind of impact they're actually making on people's uh, political opinions. That's, do you feel like that's part of the reason why uh, the society is kind of more polarized than before? Because simply you can just find people to talk to who are agree with you all the time? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there's something about, uh, we refer to it as confirmation bias. People seek out information that confirms beliefs that they have. Um, it's actually a very bad thing to happen in a democracy because you actually want the opposite. You want people's ideas to be challenged. You want them to be empathetic toward other people's point of view, even if you don't agree with them. Um, and something you brought up, which I think is a, a, a factor that's important, is um, how much our, our messages are still uncontrolled by corporations. Um, so you have really uh, being driven by a profit motive, um, something like Facebook or YouTube or um, uh, Instagram, where you have uh, messages that are corporate sponsored and corporations are deciding how many messages you get of one thing or another. Um, there, there's, that's not necessarily a unique issue to social media because you've always had this issue of corporations deciding um, what people should be hearing or listening to. Um, but it certainly influences the, the way people think. And I have to say, because people tune into more partisan uh, things, things uh, political opinions that tend to be extreme, um, I do think that that contributes to the polarization because uh, as uh, media outlets attempt to broadcast the things that people are going to tune into, you definitely get the, get the, the pressure to be more polarizing. Um, uh, moderate politics tends not to get very good television ratings, for example. Interesting. So, because basically the only thing for now drive them is actually they want you to stay on the platform as long as possible. And uh, intendedly or not intendedly, a side effect is actually they want to feed you something that you will always watch. 
and which turned into turned everything into the polarization more and more. Great. Okay. So another thing you mentioned that was uh, you mentioned advertising, and then you changed the word. But basically, when you, whenever you think about like, hey, when people speak of like, I can use multiple channel to receive to reach multiple peoples, which I cannot reach before. It kind of reminds us of marketing, right? So it's almost like, hey, is politics really a a marketing type of thing? And also, you can see more and more marketing technologies or strategies has been used in political campaigns, like survey, is like phone interviews, it's like study groups, right? And data analysis, all those kind of things. Um, is that a good thing? Well, I think that politics has always been marketing. Um, and so it, I don't think this is a new development because I think politics has always been selling ideas to people. Uh, I think with the technology that we have and certainly with the uh, information that we have about what kind of marketing works or doesn't work um, and then big data uh, playing a role like how much information we have, um, how much information marketing firms or political campaigns have um, that may have ramped it up. It may have changed it, uh, it in, in terms of kind of uh, exacerbating or making it even easier for marketing campaigns to be successful linked to politics. Um, uh, and I also think that um, kind of going back to what I said about political identity, um, I'm not sure that we necessarily uh, should blame marketing for uh, what it is that people consume when it comes to politics. Um, people also seek out things that uh, express uh, beliefs that they have, uh, identity that they have. So if I can buy a t-shirt uh, that expresses a political opinion, uh, let's say, save the environment. Um, and an environmental organization has marketed these t-shirts, they have created a great product, and I can buy a t-shirt, spend money on it, wear it, say something about my identity, tell the people around me that I believe what I believe because of my t-shirt. Um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it kind of feeds into what we want, ideally, in a liberal democratic society in terms of a pluralism of ideas being expressed all the time. So if I'm not gonna go around telling everyone I see, I wanna save the environment, um, but I'm wearing a t-shirt that says that, um, I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, I think the, the question of who produces it, um, how it's used, those, those are some really good questions. Um, and I think that there's some really good critical arguments that can be made over marketing campaigns that are not necessarily designed to give people a voice, but in fact, tell people what they ought to think. Um, I, I think that there are really good uh, critical arguments that can happen there. But I don't think that those arguments necessarily should indict or criticize overall the um, ability that people have now of expressing themselves through popular culture or popular culture marketing something to them that allows them to express their values and beliefs. So it's basically still the old story that is you have a need and you have a person who have a product which meets the need and that's the positive side of marketing as long as we, it's done in the right way it's not propaganda it's not like one directional uh brainwash is probably okay right and i think one of the examples that i use uh when i when i've talked about this before is the red campaign um uh promoting aids research and um aids awareness and i think that there was uh about a decade and you can still buy uh product red things you can have a red phone and a uh, a red uh, folder or a, 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 a red microwave or something. I'm sure they have something like that. Uh, but the, what that did was it raised awareness and it raised money so that people as a part of their identity could say, I'm aware that this is a problem around the world and in certain communities. And um, I think that we ought to all be doing something to make a difference. 
Now, there are people who criticize something like that and say that that just commercializes the problem. So rather than actually, quote unquote, doing something about the problem, you've just purchased a phone. And then the, the, the argument against that idea, the idea that I'm, I'm suggesting would be that buying a phone doesn't actually do anything for solving the age crisis. Um, but my argument is actually the opposite. We've um, always known that um, boycotting products has been a good way to um, like express ourselves as consumers. We decide not to buy something. We're saying something about what we value because we're not buying it. Um, the opposite has to be true. When we buy things, we say stuff about ourselves. And so if we're purchasing products or not purchasing products based on our um, identity, based on the things that we value, um, I, I think that's an important element in, in talking about our culture and how it is we participate politically. Uh, consumption is absolutely a part of that story. And so I'm not sure that it's necessarily good or bad. Um, there are ways that our consumption uh, express ourselves, and then there are also ways that that consumption can be manipulated. Um, so I think that that's really uh, where uh, the, the complexity of the relationship between cultural consumption and politics uh, comes into the conversation. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's a good overall uh, evaluation on this situation. Great. Well, that's enough for the abstract stuff. Now we're going to go into concrete stuff we care about, like I read three of your articles, and each one is actually about a really interesting show I care. So let's start with uh, Batman. Let's start with Dark Knight. So uh, in your article, the article named, they turned to a man they did not fully understand, the Dark Knight and the conservative critics of political liberalism. So in the story of Dark Knight, Batman, especially in the Christopher Nolan version, trilogy, and what are you referring to political liberalism and what are you referring to conservative critics? Yeah. So um, political liberalism uh, is uh, really the, the basis for um, uh, most Western democracies. Uh, and there are certain principles that political liberalism adheres to. Uh, so when we say that the, uh, the United States is a liberal, has a liberal government or is a liberal society, we're referring to a few different things. Um, one is the belief in the uh, democratic and bureaucratic state. Uh, so you establish government through a democratic process and the bureaucratic structures of government is responsible for distributing goods and services to the citizens um, and also protecting the safety and health of those citizens. Um, and so that's, that's a primary feature of liberalism. Um, there are all sorts of other features, but we'll, we can focus on that in particular. Um, so the liberal solution to all of our problems is the government that we establish to solve those problems. That's the liberal bureaucratic state that, that we all believe in. It's why we, we create government in a liberal society, in a liberal sense, is to solve our problems. Um, there is a, a, a suspicion of government, however, that underlies liberalism, which actually gives us one of the primary points of disagreement between liberals and conservatives in Western societies is a fundamental distrust that government can actually solve your problems. So we have then, even though everyone's liberal, everyone believes in the United States, most people are liberal in the sense that they believe government can solve some problems. The question is what problems can government solve and what problems can government not solve? Um, and so a conservative critique of government, and this is rooted in what a conservative believes philosophically, um, rooted in conservative philosophers who have written over time, 
is that we can't possibly solve all of our problems through a bureaucratic rationalistic state. That there are problems that can't be solved by this governmental structure. And so this gives us several of our uh, more conventional and well understood conservative arguments that say that government can't solve the healthcare problem, government can't solve poverty, poverty, government can't uh, solve, um, uh, you know, opioid addiction or something like that. So conservatives tend to resist government solutions to problems because they don't trust government. So this brings us to Batman. And uh, Batman is a superhero who, and, and actually this turns out to be true of a lot of superhero narratives, although Batman's a particularly good example of it, um, where we have the hero who is required because government has failed to do its job. Uh, crime is widespread because government has failed to solve crime. Uh, police are ineffective uh, and the structures of society are ineffective. And so the hero is needed because society, because the liberal state has failed. And so we describe uh, Batman as a conservative action hero because in Batman, we see the, uh, a really good example of a, an action hero who is needed because of the failures of a bureaucratic state. The state can no longer protect the safety, the health of citizens. The state can no longer provide security from conflict. And certainly, the state cannot protect people from villains. And that's where Batman comes in. So, um, but then we, we need to think about another possibility that is, we can actually overthrow the current garment for whatever, for whatever reason, like corruptions and everything, to replace it with a new garment, which is, which is more competent. And uh, is, Bat is that a solution? And is Batman against that solution? No, because that's not the, well, it's, it is a possibility, but that's not the solution that Batman gives us. So Batman is not a political figure in that he wants to see an overthrow of the political system. He is not a political figure in the sense that he wants to see government change. He's not advocating for police force to have more weapons. He's not giving them the Batmobile. He's not trying to get the government or the mayor to do anything different. He is saying that there is a breakdown of those structures, but that we don't need to replace those structures with something new. We just need something that is outside the law, outside of those structures that will save us. Um, and so one of the things that the conservative critique says, which is one of the reasons why we say Batman is a conservative action hero, is that the solution to our liberal bureaucratic problems is not more liberal bureaucratic structures, that the solution has to come outside of those structures. Uh, so I think your, your question would be a good one, but it's not one that Batman suggests. Uh, we do not have an alternative in the superhero narrative for having a different kind of government. We just have a bat signal that says government, we give up, we can't solve the problem, Batman has to come and save us. That actually brings us to then, you mentioned a lot in the article and we, when we watch Batman, probably the most interesting thing is actually the principles Batman put on himself because clearly you're breaking the law. So what's your principle? What are the bottom line of Batman? There are certain things you cannot kill Probably, but he also mentioned in Nolan's version, actually, he breaks a lot of things, which he didn't in the traditional ones. Can we elaborate on that? Like, what's, who gives Batman power? And also, how do Batman constrain his own power? Because he's basically the, the observer of himself, right? He's the only one who kind of constrains himself. Right. Uh, and it's, it's actually um, an important feature of modern conservatism is that the individual is the, has their own moral compass, their own idea of the difference between good and bad, 
um, that idea of good and bad comes from uh, uh, traditional structures like family. Um, and I, I, I think ba uh, uh, Bruce Wayne's virtues uh, come from his family, his upbringing. Um, but I think that you also get a moral compass in Alfred uh, sometimes who is, is, is giving kind of, has the conversation with Batman about what's good, what's bad. Um, but the, the important point there is that, that, that the, the virtue is not coming from law. The virtue comes outside of law. And so for, for Batman, the, the, uh, the, the power behind his virtuous act is that he's the one who's deciding what's good or bad. He's not letting someone else decide that for him. And I think that is the kind of um, uh, more um, anti-liberal belief that our society is not the one that should be telling us what to do. We need to determine that for ourselves. Um, and I think that that may be where Batman's morality comes from. It's not going to be particularly satisfying because then you're going to say, well, where does that come from? But that's where I think you get more rooted in the traditional answer of it comes from the more traditional sources of morality, like family, church, uh, other types of personal relationships. So is, is it similar to a paternalism? It's just like Batman is trying to watch everybody as a parent and just for a certain, just for crime, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And that's where I think, um, you know, Batman steps in when uh, crime makes it so that the liberal state can't solve the problem. Um, it almost seems like part of the political messaging of Batman is that the liberal state is okay. It does okay most of the time, but there are certain uh, situations, certain conditions, certain villains uh, when it comes to the Joker um, where the liberal state can't actually solve our problems. And so then you need to um, uh, resolve the problems with, with some sort of extra legal uh, methodology. Um, one of the things, and this is becoming more of a dated example because we're looking at about uh, five or 10 years ago, um, and, and we saw this coming into popular culture and politics. Uh, people might remember the uh, television show uh, 24, where you had Jack Bauer um, fighting uh, against terrorists. And it seemed like every single episode, there was a moment where Jack Bauer had to decide whether or not to torture someone to get some information. And it was this constant pushing against the idea that the rule of law somehow prevents us from actually addressing the threats that are facing us. Um, and actually that show was pointed to by people in the Bush administration and uh, conservative lawmakers are actually examples of that show being referenced on the floor of Congress um, and in the executive branch of government in the United States of uh, people saying, um, you know, Jack Bauer had to do this. We've got to be, have, you know, allow our spies to have this kind of action. Um, and so I, I, I bring that up because that's a similar argument to what we see in like, the Batman movies, where Batman has to violate the law or operate outside the law in order to keep people safe. So there's something about the rule of law that is not ultimately effective at keeping people safe from threats that become extraordinary. Um, and so I think that that's where you have uh, another uh, conservative critique of the liberal state in that it is unable to step up and defend itself against extraordinary threats. That's interesting. But then I want to push that thing a little bit further. Why can't Batman just kill Joker? That's a big question mark for me because things, I have seen a guy who suffered enough, took all the burden on himself and went so far to protect other people, to do what's right, even though that means like a, a huge price to pay on his side. 
basically his story is corrupted, not so corrupted, but his story is tortured because he breaks so many rules, right? But yeah. why can't he just do the last piece that is kill Joker? Because you can see constantly it's annoying. Like you put Joker in jail, he come back, kill another hundreds of people, you put him back. And then another hundred and thousands of people. It seems like you are not responsible for all the people who died from Joker's action simply because you're, I won't say naiveness principle or anything. So why, why can't him just break, go, go, to, the, go to the last step? Yeah, well, Batman fans uh, across many different producers and texts would acknowledge that Christopher Nolan's Batman is far less worried about killing people than other Batmans. Um, <laughs> and so you have... Uh, he, did, like, he didn't, right? Uh, he yeah. didn't, but he turns a blind eye when Bane is killed. Like, he, oh, he, yeah. he has no problem. I mean, he, he, ha he has a kind of a superficial, like, I, I don't think it's worth it. But then he goes all over the place, like, killing people all over the place. Um, and there are plenty of... Uh, of henchmen that lose their lives uh, based on Batman's uh, actions um, in the Christopher Nolan films. But, but you are right that there, I think in, in Nolan's films, there is a more superficial commitment to what is a deeper commitment in other Batman um, uh, comics and movies where Batman does have an aversion to killing people. Um, I do think that, that that shows that there there can be an ethic that underlies what motivates Batman. It's just not an ethic that promotes the liberal state as a solution. So to say that the liberal state is a, isn't a solution is not to say that there isn't a virtue that people have to uphold. In fact, conservatism argues that virtue is something that operates separately from the liberal state. And so Batman not wanting to kill people is part of a conservative argument that you don't need the government telling you not to kill people in order to not want to kill people. Um, so it actually makes Batman more of that kind of conservative icon where he has a set of values that he's promoting even outside of the law, even where the law doesn't exist. Um, and, and certainly Batman operates outside of the law. Um, so I think that that, that is something that, uh, that Batman adheres to and essentially proves um, to Batman, to others within the, the, the stories that Batman does have a virtue, um, that he's not just a vigilante who's killing people, uh, which is something that we see in other types of heroes. So he's not just a tool. He actually has a standard, and he, which is parallel to the law system, right? right that's part of the right. virtue we're, we're looking for. So that's almost like a universal human ethic. No matter which situation you are in, even though you break all the secular rules, there are still rules, which is just because you're human, right. you have to obey. That's yeah. interesting. So, so let's turn back on Joker. And you mentioned in your article, Joker and Bane is probably the most two, two most significant uh, villains in all of the villains we see in Batman. Um, why are they so special? Why Joker and Bane's, Bane are so special? Uh, so um, there is a, uh, the, the, while the hero in um, these comic book stories, and we're using Batman as, the, as a really good example, um, operates outside of the law, in order for the hero to have, in, in order for the hero to be required, there has to be a villain that creates what, what we refer to in, in, the, in the chapter and then um, what comes out of some of the political theory literature as uh, the state of exception. Um, the state of exception is where you have to suspend the law in order to deal with a horrible existential threat. Um, so uh, a criminal who's stealing somebody's purse or shoplifting a candy bar um, doesn't require us to suspend the law. You know, you can put someone in jail, you can, you know, whatever, you, you uh, issue a fine. 
Um, but there are some threats that are existential threats, that are threats to your very existence. And so Joker and Bane are examples of the villains that people imagine in the world that, re that require us to look outside of the rule of law to solve them. Um, and so the significance of the Joker really as Batman's arch nemesis um, and then Bane in the Dark Knight series um, is that you have a villain who creates such a disruption that it requires Batman and only Batman to solve the problem. Uh, the police are ineffective, government's ineffective. Uh, and so uh, because Joker is a threat that we can't solve through structures of law, you need someone who, is, uh, who responds to that. Um, I also think that it's uh, interesting in the Batman stories that Batman is, uh, or Bruce Wayne, let's talk about Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is a billionaire. Um, who is uh, financed through his own fortune and fighting the villains that the state cannot fight. So it's simultaneously an argument for the accumulation of wealth because it's only the people who accumulate wealth who are able to address these existential threats. The government also has a lot of wealth and they can't possibly address these threats. It's only because a billionaire who is ethically driven creates all these inventions and has all these uh, resources to fight against these existential threats. So you have kind of these two layers going on in a Batman story, the existential threat, which requires Batman to be there, and then Batman who responds to those threats. Um, and so to answer your question, I think we would all think it's pretty ridiculous if Batman was out there, uh, you know, running down shoplifters with the Batmobile. Um, it, it, but what, what we have in kind of the cultural imagination is threats that we can't address unless Batman is there to address them for us. So that's why I, he's always working with Gordon. And there are certain things only Batman does and Gordon just not helping, but there are certainly things like Gordon can back up because there are, when I play the video games of Batman, I was thinking like, wow, why don't we just work with Gordon? Like go into the building together. So to avoid all this kind of bullshit. <laughs> but then it turns out, yeah, there are certain things only Batman can do. And he seems like he prefers to do things alone in his way. He doesn't want to clap. Is, is that possible for Batman to collaborate, collaborate with anybody on his actions? No, in fact, um, there is a, uh, the conservative action hero that we talk about um, uh, quite a bit in our, in our chapter is actually based on uh, uh, the Western American cowboy narrative. Um, the idea that the uh, lone gunman walking across the plain um, who doesn't work well with others is the one we have to rely on. Um, and so we have, um, uh, there's another chapter in one of our other books that we edited um, that's titled From John Wayne to John McClane, um, the Bruce Willis character in the Die Hard movies, um, that uh, actually looks at the cowboy narrative as the way we think about action heroes. Um, and there have been actually much more written about the cowboy narrative, I think, than action hero narratives um, from this perspective. Um, but to answer your question, um, the cowboy has to act alone because that's the way a cowboy is. There's a whole um, ethic around the independence, the um, not being tied to anything, um, being driven by virtue, but not being able to tie yourself down to anyone. It's very hard to have personal relationships um, within these stories. Um, so yeah, I, I think it is funny. I mentioned it before, but it always struck me that Bruce Wayne's a billionaire 
and yet he's not giving his technology to the police. I mean, if he if the police had his technology, it seems like they would be much more effective at, at fighting these threats. In fact, Bane, Bane taking over um, Gotham, it seems like it would have been prevented if the police would have had like two dozen Batmobiles and three dozen of those airships that he ends up in. Um, we wouldn't have had an issue. So I think that um, it's interesting in the stories that it has to be Batman, that Batman has to work alone. And he's also the only one with any uh, form of technology that ends up being effective at defeating the villains. Yeah, that's why I like, for me, when I watch the movie, I kind of feel like fighting villains is, is his personal need in some sense. It's just like, that's the reason I exist. So I don't want to spread the fun <laughs> almost like that. And uh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. so. Now back to, to the political theory part. So this is almost like a live show, a hypothetical show in Gotham City. That is like how liberal government can actually lose its function you know, when facing a certain kind of threat and you need an outlaw hero to come here and save and deal with the situation. Is this realistic? Like, does it happen in real life? Because we do have a liberal government. Do we have threats right. we cannot handle and we have a hero actually did that thing for us? Well, it operates at, at several different levels, and I can give some examples. Um, certainly, we don't have Batman, at least not that I know of or that I've seen. Uh, but it we does. Should watch for the billionaires. Yeah, yeah, we do have billionaires. Um, I kind of wish they were flying around in jets, uh, taking out criminals sometimes. Uh, but um, we do have expectations for our political leaders. So I think um, one of the reasons in a time of crisis that people have looked to the president as this heroic figure is because of the stories that we tell each other about how powerful our individual leaders ought to be. So when um, tragedy happens, when some sort of crisis is happening, people look to political leaders, particularly executives, to have a heroic stance. Um, so, you know, like uh, looking to Donald Trump, for example, in a crisis, uh, a pandemic, and saying, you need to save us from this. Um, even though a bureaucratic state doesn't necessarily maintain that a president should be responsible uh, for saving people from it. Um, and sim similar with uh, like the uh, a war that happens um, when George W. Bush is president, um, the Gulf War sets up this crisis and then people look to a president or September 11th, a, a terrorist attack. Um, and then people look to the leader and say, you need to save us. Um, it may, it's definitely not Batman, but I think the culture and the, the popular culture has set up the expectation that we look to our political leaders to be heroic as opposed to bureaucratic in times of crisis. Um, and so I think that that's uh, part of the real life or part of a real life implication. Um, another one I see right now during a pandemic, and I meant to mention it um, a few minutes ago, is that one of the reasons that Batman works alone is that Batman really does represent um, the, the idea that uh, we ought to be free to make our own choices. So Batman is totally free because he operates outside of the law. And I think we know that the law and freedom have a contentious relationship. If there's a law against something, we don't have the freedom to do otherwise. Um, so Batman represents freedom for us in a way that the law doesn't necessarily allow. Um, and so right now, actually, during the pandemic, um, all over the world, uh, and particularly in the United States, you have some people protesting um, uh, rules about staying at home, saying we'd rather die, we'd rather be sick than be stuck at our, in our homes. 
Um, now, th that's actually is an unpopular opinion. That, that's not one that is widespread when we look at the polls, but there certainly are vocal groups of people that are advocating this. Um, I think this is a direct uh, reflection and translation of what we get in some of these popular culture narratives, which is that freedom is a more important value than law. F freedom is a more important value than safety. So it's not that these ideas didn't exist before, it's that these ideas are communicated in popular culture in a way that reinforces them for us. So when we are raised on a cowboy narrative or a Batman narrative, and it comes to a political event like a pandemic, we may think of ourselves more like Batman than we do uh, like a, a good follower who stays at home and does what we're told. Um, and so I think that it's not that there will be a Batman necessarily, but it's that the values that happen within these movies and TV shows and novels and comic books, that those are what become embedded in our identity and our political identity and what we value. Do you think it's dangerous for us to act out the fairy tales? Yes, but insofar as um, anything is dangerous, I mean, the um, politics is always dangerous. So we have uh, the, the fairy tales that tell us what we value and don't value um, or help reinforce those things for us. And then we live those things out. But um, val like values have also fueled every single bloody revolution that has ever existed. Um, so, you know, is, is Marx's Communist Manifesto a fairy tale or is it a work of political theory? Um, you know, so many documents are dangerous, um, but it, I think that the, the question is kind of how is the how is that danger translated into political activity? Um, I think until people are violent, I wouldn't call it dangerous. Um, I think it's just the expressing of political ideas. In a democracy, you can have all sorts of ideas, even ideas that are dangerous. And as long as you get outvoted by the rest of us who don't want to face that danger, then we're fine with it. Um, so I, I, I think I would answer your question that I don't think it's dangerous unless there's violence. Um, and even then, there's been political violence in history that I, I think almost everyone at some level has been okay with uh, because revolutions have won. I mean, the American Revolution was violent, the Communist Revolution was violent, the French Revolution was violent. So all those ideas are dangerous. I, I think the question is just what, what's the level of acceptability when it comes to danger uh, in, in a political context? Interesting, yeah, because I'm thinking about if my hero is an outlaw, that probably in this kind of extreme situation that will put me to protect myself on my action heroes to actually regard to actually care less about you know the 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 regular stuff for the followers but more about like if i'm the hero basically i can do anything i want as long as i have my own justifications for my actions and that for me looks i won't say probably not dangerous it's just like yeah there are certain people who doesn't want that and <laughs> who wants to be left out of this but yeah things can things can go wrong easily that's interesting. So, okay, that's the, that's a really interesting uh, conversation about Batman. But now I, I want to move to the next one, which is actually a com comedian show, The Simpsons. Okay, so I'm actually going to read out your uh, <laughs> title, which is kind of weird the first time I saw it. It's called The Aristotle's Politics and the Virtues of Springfield, Community Education and Friendship in The Simpsons. So how do you make the connection between The Simpsons, which it seems like a really funny show, to the very serious Aristotle's politics? What's the theory of Aristotle's politi politics? Why is it in Simpsons? 
Yeah, well, um, so uh, I, I study the history of political thought in addition to studying uh, popular culture and politics. Um, so I read uh, Plato and Aristotle, Machiavelli, Rousseau, um, and that's what I teach in my classes. Um, what I want students to see is that some of the ideas that we get in, in political theory uh, over the centuries and going back even 2000 years are ideas that are communicated um, in our uh, popular culture. And uh, I'm, I'm a fan of The Simpsons. I have edited two book collections uh, that are titled after The Simpsons, even though it's a little bit of a uh, uh, misleading because there's only one chapter in each book about The Simpsons, the rest of it is about other types of popular culture. Um, but uh, I think that The Simpsons has a lot of political theory in it that's worth talking about. Um, in, the, in the chapter that you mentioned, um, I look at Aristotle's political theory and how we see it in The Simpsons. Um, one of the things that I, I think uh, some people miss about The Simpsons when they watch it, because the show has a reputation for being um, uh, kind of uh, not, not following uh, the rules, being kind of uh, insubordinate or um, uh, challenging ideas about something, but um, it's actually a, a pretty traditional show when it comes to the value of family, the value of community, um, why it is that the, the, the town of Springfield is featured so heavily in the show, um, that relationships between the characters are so important for the development of the characters. Uh, so when I watch The Simpsons, I see a lot of, uh, I see a reflection of Aristotle's politics. And so that, that was your question. That's what I um, can talk about. Um, and there are several things that we see in Aristotle that we see in The Simpsons. Um, the first is that uh, the community is an essential way that people live in society. So we do not live without being connected to a community of people. Um, and the relationships that we have with people in our community are the relationships that define who we are. Uh, and so the example uh, that, that we use in, in the chapter is the relationship between Homer and Marge, for example. Um, and uh, the, you know, Conan O'Brien, the um, uh, talk show host, was a writer on The Simpsons before um, he became a talk show host. And um, he's famously said that uh, we, none of us would ever like Homer if it wasn't for Marge. Um, that Homer's character is completely unlikable, totally despicable. But it's actually his family being around him that makes him more likable. I think the same thing could be said for uh, Bart Simpson and Lisa, that without Lisa, Bart is a pretty obnoxious kid. But there are many episodes where Lisa actually gives Bart something to think about, where he actually steps up and is an excellent brother. Um, and then we also see all sorts of other relationships in the episode. Fans of The Simpsons will recognize some of these um, going down the path of a Mr. Uh, Smithers and Montgomery Burns. Um, and so you have Burns being this villainous character, and then Smithers is this partner that keeps him um, grounded and keeps him uh, it, almost acting ethically sometimes, even if he has to trick him into doing something. Um, you have Lenny and Carl at the nuclear power plant. Um, you have Moe and Barney at the bar. Uh, so it, it, in Aristotle, we see that there's a value to communi community and there's a value to friendship. And for Aristotle, friendship is really important because it makes us fully who we are. We can't be ethical without having friends. We can't develop ethical uh, sentiments without having friends that help us develop these sentiments. 
And so if we think about even ourselves, where we develop our ethics from, where we develop our values from, it's because we've had friends that reflect those ethics back to us, that correct us when we've done something wrong, that tell us the truth about our behavior. And so I think we see this in The Simpsons, this show that is um, not always considered to be this uh, uh, ultimate example of ethics, but really within the characters in the community, we see this Aristotelian idea of ethics uh, being played out. Um, so that's one important connection I see between uh, the Simpsons and Aristotle. So when you say uh, friendship, does it also include marriage, parenting, and all the stuff? So it's, it's like a broader relationship in communities, not just like friendship, right? Right. And it's actually how Aristotle defines friendship. Um, friendship in Aristotle's sense is um, a relationship where you are formed with the other person um, and you become who you are with the other person. And so Aristotle defends, defines friendship in a, in a really robust way. So it's not just we're friends with someone we happen to see on the street. Friendship is a, a much more intimate relationship of cultivating the purpose of yourself and the other person within that relationship. That's clear. Okay. What about Aristotle's idea about the best political regime, like at the government level? Now we're talking about like individual government and community in the middle, right? So we finished the community. What about at the government level? What's the best political system? So one of the things that Aristotle is famous for in, in, in many of his ethical and political theories is believing that there is no such thing as the best overall of anything. Uh, this is Aristotle's re rejection of a reaction to Plato who is famous for saying that there is an ideal type of regime and that all like everything outside of that ideal type is just uh, deficient in some way. Um, Aristotle does not believe that. He thinks that you take a group of people and you do the best possible that you can do with those people. Uh, and so I think we see that in the town of Springfield, there are several Simpsons episodes where someone gains power of some kind and it always turns out poorly. I mean, we can imagine uh, there's, a, there's an episode that we talk about a lot um, which is where the Mensa members take over the town and um, the, the mayor jumps out of a window because uh, there was a, a controversy over, over um, gazebo rentals in the park. And uh, the members of the town um, who are standing around in the office are the learned members. They're the members of Mensa Genius Club. And so the Mensa Genius Club takes over the town and it turns out that they do an awful job. The town is it, like, it, must, it may have been bad before, but it gets even worse. Um, so here you have the smartest people in society supposedly running the town, and it doesn't work out. That actually looks a lot like Aristotle's warnings about a politics that is designed around what we might think to be the best overall politics run by the geniuses. Um, what Aristotle advocates for is something that he calls the mixed regime, um, where you have multiple people in charge, different locuses of power, um, and because there's no one best, no one best overall, way of doing politics, you need to aim what is best possible. And so this is something that happens in Springfield, um, where you have a mayor who's probably corrupt. In fact, it's clear that he is corrupt. Um, you have a superintendent of schools that doesn't seem to care too much about schools. Uh, you have a, a garbage commissioner race where the person who's qualified for the job gets, ends up beaten out by Homer that just promises to do everything for everyone. Um, and uh, it's clear by the end of every episode that the mixed regime that already exists in The Simpsons is the best possible regime that Springfield can have. Um, so that really does also reflect what Aristotle's view of politics is. 
interesting. So it really depends on what kind of culture of which group of people and for them to figure out probably the best thing which is suitable for them. So ideologies or systems or the format of the system really is not the key. So what's the key principle? What, what's the purpose of a government? Why do we need a government? What should the government achieve? No matter which kind of format. Yeah, for Aristotle, and this is not actually what, uh, the, this is not the kind of politics that we necessarily ascribe to in the United States, but for Aristotle. Aristotle, yeah. Yeah. For Aristotle, the purpose of politics is the purpose of people. And so actually the word that we use to describe Aristotle's ethics and politics is teleological, um, which is a fancy way of saying, um, studying the purpose of something. And so Aristotle would want us to ask the question, what is the purpose of being human? And then government should be established to help humans fulfill their purpose. Uh, so if, and Aristotle's answer to the question is actually that human beings purpose is to be virtuous. Um, to be virtuous is to practice uh, what, fully what it means to be human, to be kind. Are you, referring, are you referring to a human as a group or human as a species or human as a, each individual human has different. Yeah, for uh, Aristotle, they both, yeah, for Aristotle, they mean the same thing. So every human being individually is fulfilling their purpose when they do what is good for humanity as a species. Um, and so it's an Aristotelian idea that I, as an individual, we will be doing something that is good for me and that that will be good for humanity. He does not think that they are separately good. Um, and so he, he is absolutely not a liberal and liberalism doesn't exist uh, back then as an idea. Um, but in this way, Aristotle would not be seen as someone who advocates for individual good over and above the communal good. The communal good is more important than the individual good, but the individual good being aligned with the communal good, that's what we should be aiming for. Um, and so an example of this, and there, there are a lot of things, by the way, in Aristotle that are totally distasteful that I'm not talking about. He advocates slavery. He clearly yeah. has a very hierarchical way of looking at people. Um, and those are uh, absolutely not what I'm talking about here. Um, what he does say is that it is the responsibility of society to educate people to virtuous activities. And so uh, we can take something like a public education system and trace its roots back to Aristotle um, in asking the question, what is the purpose of having a publicly funded education system that requires all children to have the same curriculum? Um, and the answer to that is that we want all children to be equipped with the ability to make judgments, to have knowledge, to have a certain amount of expertise on a whole range of subjects. That is what it means to be human, to have knowledge, to pursue knowledge, to learn how to be good to each other. And so when we look at the public education system in the United States, this really does come close to what Aristotle advocates for. Um, I make the same argument about Springfield, where um, in The Simpsons, school is a really important place for characters in the show. Um, it's one of the uh, settings that we see uh, constantly being a lesson, a place for lessons of Bart and Lisa, but also adults in the series. And so I think that um, the, the public education is a good way to think about a lesson that Aristotle teaches, which is that we are all responsible for the well-being of society and raising people to be in line with that well-being. Who defines the common good of the society? Uh, in, well, in, he, in his uh, society, in yeah, Aristotle's well, Arist society. Aristotle um, believes that, that 
uh, we all are defining the common good in living out what is good for us. Um, I think contemporary audiences might be dissatisfied because it sometimes sounds like he's saying <clears throat> that philosophers are the ones who should define the common good. Um, he also thinks that the common good is something that is scientifically ascertainable. So Aristotle believes that ethics is a science, um, that politics is a science, just like biology or chemistry or astronomy. <coughs> so it's a matter of discovering what is good for us, for Aristotle. Um, so I think he would say that a, uh, a scientist um, who specializes in ethics would be the ones who we should ask questions about what is good for society. That's interesting, but I mean, even a does, does a scientist even agree upon themselves? Well, Aristotle seemed to think so. Uh, yeah. And just as uh, Aristotle, you know, he wrote about a lot of things, not just politics. Um, so he was one of the first you know, biologists, one of the first physicists. Um, and so he thinks that uh, ethics operates the same way as physics do, where we can come up with a theory about something. And even though scientists disagree about a lot of different theories, there are some scientific principles that are held in common and the scientific methodology certain, certainly is held in common. Um, so uh, I think uh, Aristotle would say that we are all scientists when it comes to something like ethics, just as we're all scientists when it comes to something like biology. Yes, we can disagree, but then we just have to have a society in which we work out those disagreements. Did he actually end up finding us a theory of ethics? The ultimate theory? Uh, what he did, um, there have been a lot of ethicists since then who have disagreed with it. Um, <laughs> his, his theory of ethics is, is called eudaimonism, and it's the, uh, an ethics of happiness. He says that um, there is something that makes human beings happy and that we should all aim toward our happiness. But for him, happiness is not... Um, uh, hedonism, where our, we just pursue what we want to that gives us pleasure. Um, in fact, there are a lot of things that are pleasurable that actually make us unhappy, he says. Um, so happiness for him is something much more integral. Um, we, he, we probably would directly translate it as fulfillment. Um, so he, he has an ethics of fulfillment where we should do things that fulfill us um, as humans, as individual humans, and as a group of humans, and he has that completely worked out. So Aristotle's Ethics is a book that he wrote on ethics where he lays out his theory of ethics, and it becomes an ethics of human fulfillment. That's interesting. So he kind of defined what the right way is, and then he started to say, like, politics is actually serving under this common goal, and we actually need to educate everybody to pursue this goal. And eventually we reach a big harmony with where everybody find their place. Meanwhile, the whole society find its place as a whole. That's pretty compelling. Yeah, well, and the other thing that Aristotle says is that, um, and this is where I think uh, it becomes much more what we now call contemporary communitarian, is that he doesn't believe that there is one answer to the question. So he believes that, it, you know, in our, it, it, in our current way of thinking about human societies, that every country may have their own way of doing things, and there isn't one way of doing things that's better than the other ways. Um, so Aristotle's example, you have Spartans and Athenians. Um, and Spartans are raised with a particular culture, a particular way of viewing the world, and what's good for Spartans may not be what's good for Athenians. Um, and so even though he does have a theory of ethics, um, it's a theory of ethics that operates within particular societies 
Um, he, he does not say that one form uh, or truth is going to be in common among all people, except for this idea that we all have a purpose and we all should be trying to find out what that purpose is. So he gave us a methodology, but we need to apply that methodology to find our own. Yes. Roughly. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Which so, is why his philosophy is so influential, by the way, because, uh, you know, that if, if you say, you ask the question, which philosopher has been the most influential in all of history, you'd probably come down to Aristotle or Plato. Um, and Plato never wrote anything in a treatise form, so he never told us what he actually believed. Uh, so we pretty much just have Aristotle telling us what he actually believed going back that far um, to being influential for essentially any philosopher who did work after Aristotle. That's interesting because I, I talk, we have a, in China, Chinese culture, we have Confucius, who was like uh, 2,000 years ago. A lot of people are wondering, like, why do we even, even learn Confucius in nowadays? Like, clearly everything he said, like, for example, the advocation of slavery from Aristotle is clearly wrong. But the problem here is it's not about the answer. It's about the way you approach the answer. You should think about if Aristotle lived in nowadays, he sees what people's common value are, and he observed this thing, and what kind of question he's going to raise, and how he's going to use his wisdom to actually find the answer instead of telling an answer which was actually answered 2,000 years ago which is clearly outdated, right? So that's actually the, my, my understanding of like learning philosophy, why it's so great, simply because you can repeat the same thing again, 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 but reach different answers. Yeah, and I actually, I'm not, I'm not a, what, what's funny about all this conversation is I'm actually not a huge fan of Aristotle. Uh, <laughs> he, he wouldn't even be the one that I would pick necessarily to, when my students learn all the philosophers from me, there are some that I like talking about even more than Aristotle. Um, so who are they? Who are, who are your favorite? Well, I, I'll tell you that in a second. I do want to say that um, I did have a professor in graduate school that said all of history is a footnote to Aristotle. Uh, so there's that, the, to kind of based on what you're saying, um, you could say all of uh, history is a footnote to Confucius. Um, but I, I think there's, even though I tend to disagree with that particular statement or those particular statements, I think it is worth saying that um, our ideas always come from some place. We have not invented ideas. And so to recognize the source of those ideas is not necessarily to agree with them, but to acknowledge that they have a source. There was someone that gave us ideas that we then can disagree with, agree with, make changes to. Um, so those are, I think, uh, really important points. Now you sound like Socrates. <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. Um, my favorite philosophers, uh, one, is going to be a, one is an unpopular choice, but I think he gets a bad rap. Um, and that is Machiavelli. So he got a bad rap because of his theory or because he's he he's as a person? Both. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so Machiavelli gets a bad rap because he wrote The Prince and is essentially considered to be, uh, I mean, his name becomes an adjective that means manipulator. Um, but so in it, he advocates, you know, it's better to be feared than loved is one of the famous quotes out of uh, Machiavelli's The Prince. Um, but I think he gets a bad rap because he also has a, another set of writings uh, that is advice for a republic. Um, and he's actually writing the prince to a prince, and then uh, his advice for a republic is completely different. Um, but so anyway, that's, that, that may be a podcast for another time. Uh, but I, I, Machiavelli is the only person I, I have in my office as a bust. So I have the head of Machiavelli um, in my office. Um, and then I think... Uh, it's really hard to uh, overstate the influence of Marx and Locke in 
20th and 21st century politics in the world. Um, I'm not sure that there are any two other more significant uh, political philosophers ever than Locke and Marx. And, it, 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 and I mean that as there is no political opinion on the planet Earth right now that doesn't have its root, roots in both Locke and Marx. Um, and so I think in terms of uh, modern political theory, enlightenment political theory, um, those will be two that I have. But it's so hard for me to separate it out from what I teach in class uh, because you know what I have favorites of people that I like to read um, are really difficult and I could tell you who those people are but they're not necessarily my favorites in terms of teaching students because they're difficult. Um, I really like teaching Locke and Marx because I want students to know where their ideas come from and when students say something like it's not the government's job to whatever fill in the blank um, I want them to know where that idea comes from. Why? Who says? Uh, and when someone says, well, it's government, you know, it's our job as people to take over, you know, the, uh, the, the mechanisms in society that produce wealth. Why? Where does that idea come from? Um, where does the idea of exploitation come from? Alienation come from? Where do ideas of rights and freedoms in the social contract? Um, and so for me, what I love about what I teach is the ability to take students on a path through these thinkers and show them what they already believe. They already have these beliefs. They just don't understand why they have them. Um, and so that for me is, is gives me kind of my answer to who are my favorite philosophers. Interesting, yeah, because they basically, these two philosophers set the tone, set the foundation of every argument is based on yeah. from there. So yeah. they term terminology and it's not like they just did a, a, a foundation work. They actually did almost all the work, like everything you can think of, they already did it. Now it's just a, a corollary or footnote of what they did in, right. in the last century, which is pretty amazing. It is, yeah. And that's where I think like, it's probably more accurate to say uh, the 20th and 21st century is a footnote to Locke and Marx. Sure, <laughs> yeah. is a, a footnote to Aristotle. Sometimes, I don't know, it's just something is so easy to grasp. People think powerful people are politicians or like uh, super wealthy people, but just think about Marx and Locke, like, how many people, how many generations they have influenced, and how many generations they're going to continue to influence. Is it, is it fair to say, like, actually, we don't have a third one, which even is even comparable to them to set another foundation to bring us a leap forward to think things differently? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Philosophically, there have been in um, different schools of thought. So there have been, um, you know, there. Uh, and I'll just like give something that would not be a political theory necessarily. I co-taught a course with the chair of the philosophy department um, a year ago um, on uh, existentialism. And he is an expert on Husserl. And Husserl essentially founds a school of philosophy called phenomenology. And um, it is very difficult to have any philosophical discussion in the 20th century without having a phenomenological aspect to that thought. It's, it's a set of questions about consciousness that is required to be in the background. I, I just throw him out there. there. There are people in different schools of thought that may have influenced substantially how philosophers have discussions. Um, but to answer your question, in our world of politics, where people go out into the world and vote and participate and get services from the government, there is no way there is anyone that comes even close to Locke or Marx. Not even close. Do, do you think we are urgently needing a new one? Do you think I the don't. current current do you think the current order is 
is at its end? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I actually, uh, one of the influences uh, of Marx is a German philosopher named uh, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Uh, and Hegel predicted that the end of history would happen uh, when people could have a society in which there'd be no more war and work out all their differences within that society. Um, I, I, I think I agree, and this is actually something that uh, Locke believed in. Marx to some extent believed it with the end of history, believed that that would be a communist society. Um, but I, I don't think our era is over. I don't think that it's failed. I don't think that it has any problem within it that we can't overcome within the structure. I think that so much progress has been made using the values and ideals that are embedded within this society. I mean, you take the civil rights movement, for example, in the United States, um, it wasn't calling into question the liberal structure of society. It was applying liberal values to the society, trying to have it live up to its own standards. Um, and so I think that progress is still being made, keeping our society and our values honest to our own values. And so if we say we value equality or freedom, which may sometimes be in conflict with each other, it's a matter of us working out those problems. I mean, one of the genius things that happened in the liberal state is that it incorporated Marx's ideas uh, uh, into something that we now know as the welfare state in a way that prevented communist revolutions from happening. I mean, it, so Marx has been as influential in the United States as, as he's been influential other places. Um, labor unions are another excellent example. Um, the emergence of the power of workers uh, within a capitalist structure. Uh, so to answer your question, I, I, I don't think that um, we're in desperate need of a new philosopher. And the fact that we haven't had one uh, to completely change the way that we think about things probably means that um, we're okay operating the way that we are. We just need to continue to keep ourselves honest and accountable to the values that we share. So it, it's all about the implementations, the realizations of the ideas, rather than just the idea has a flaw itself. Oh, that's that's what I think. Yeah, that's, that's my very opinion. interesting. Yeah. So uh, one question I always had for myself is just I recently read some book by uh, Michael Sanders, and he was calling for virtue in the in the current society, especially after he see he's like what markets can do, and you know all the evil individualism people only care about who themselves and don't care about what happens to others and we're losing the community values in his opinion uh do you think government the liberal government should uh or is the liberal government uh is virtue part of liberal government's duty to define um, virtue and advocate for virtue yeah so certainly classical liberalism does not believe that government is responsible for virtue and it is, uh, it is something that is one of, the main, one of the main disagreements between conservatives and liberals in the United States is how much the government is responsible for virtue. Uh, and contemporary conservatism in the United States actually tends to believe the government is more responsible to virtue uh, than, than it is to the economy, for example. Um, something like, you know, promotion of religion or um, gay marriage is an issue, uh, abortion rights is an issue where conservatives tend to want government to promote a certain kind of virtue or value with government. Um, but I think that all of that is worked out within liberalism. I think one of the, the, the genius elements of a liberal society is that you can have arguments about liberalism itself within its structure. 
So there has never been another ideology that actually asks you and gives you permission to criticize it within it. So I, you know, I, I talk to students in, in class about this, but um, you take any other ideology and usually disagreement with that ideology means that you are no longer allowed to have that ideology. So you can't be anti-communist and communist. Um, but I think that one of the uh, really clever elements of liberalism, and this actually, um, another liberal thinker uh, who's really influential in the way we think about liberalism is John Stuart Mill, who talked about the marketplace of ideas um, and the way that liberalism actually contains within it the things that will make it stronger, and that is that you can actually argue with it within liberalism. So you can have illiberal views and promote those within liberalism, and liberalism allows it. Liberalism encourages it. And liberalism has evolved over time as a result of challenges that it has faced. Um, and so I, I think that there is absolutely room within liberalism to teach values and virtues, but it's really important within liberalism to have the space for people to challenge those values and virtues. And I think the danger that there would be, and this would be dangerous from a liberal perspective, is to say that there is only one value or virtue that is correct, and that must be accepted by everyone in society. Um, that is something that liberalism prides itself on. Now, the challenge is, how do you promote values while at the same time saying everyone gets to have their own values? Um, and that, that real will continue to be a problem or a challenge for liberalism. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily a, a problem that means that liberalism can't work. I think it's just something that liberalism has to work through. Interesting. I, I would like to see actually how you promote common good. Meanwhile, just say, hey, everybody has your own standard seems like a contradiction to me, but as, as we say, like as liberal system evolve itself, maybe we will find some genius work and just suddenly make the whole thing work. Which actually bring us to the final topic we want to talk about today, that is diversity, right? <laughs> so uh, in your article, The Muppet Show and Social and Philosophical Significance of Difference, which go back to the one we mentioned at the beginning about Sesame Street and ideas of diversity planted in the, into this show. So can you, guys, can you give us like a, 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 a description on what you, you see in Sesame Street about diversity? Yeah, so in, uh, there have been several things written in contemporary political theory, and I'm thinking more of the last 100 years because I tend to say contemporary and mean something that happened even a long time ago by most other standards. Um, there's been a, a, a lot of uh, thinking about what counts as normal versus abnormal. Um, what is acceptable difference between people and what is difference that has to go away. And one of the things that we get as kind of a common message within children's programming is for children to be themselves, uh, be yourself, um, and also that difference and diversity is okay. Not only is it okay, but it's also good in a society. You want people to be different from you. You want to have friends who are different from you. Um, and really promoting the idea of a multicultural society. Um, and so uh, what we see, and this is particularly true in the works of Jim Henson, is that the monsters that Henson creates um, are essentially a way of saying that diversity is good, that we should be friends with people who are unlike us. And in the case of monsters, it's hard to think of anything more unlike human than a monster, and yet Henson has a world in which all the monsters, or most of the monsters are friendly, most of the monsters are friends with humans. And so I think what we see in Jim Henson's creations 
is the idea that difference is good and we ought to be pursuing a society in which difference is valued. That's interesting. Uh, the first time I got this idea is I didn't watch a lot of Sesame Street, but the first time I feel weird is actually when I watched Sh the Shrek. Like when a donkey and a dragon fall in love, I just like, hey, I mean, how do you call your children? <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind. But I can kind of have the feeling that what you're talking about is really interesting. So, so actually, there is no definition of normal, right, in, in his world. Like, what do you mean by normal? The majority, the average, which is nobody is like, but it's actually in the average, in the middle. Or, yeah, there's just normal is actually a weird idea. Right. Well, normal is an idea that is uh, socially constructed. Um, so anytime we use the word normal, uh, what, what we think we mean is something that is created by nature. Like, what is the normal way to walk? Well, it would be the way that most people walk. What is a normal way to talk? What is a normal way to look? But all of that is socially constructed. So what was normal a century ago isn't normal today. What's normal in uh, Wisconsin, it may not be normal in South Carolina. Um, and so normal, even though we use it oftentimes unproblematically, like be more normal, um, it's something that is created based on our social expectations. And we create it over time just by reinforcing the value of what it means to be normal. Um, but normal can be problematic because it can be a way of excluding people who are not normal. So if you're not normal, you don't get to be in our club. If you're not normal, you don't get to participate in politics. If you're not normal, you don't get to be my friend. And so rather, so pushing against this idea of normal is the idea of diversity. Diversity in a way pushes against the idea that normal or sameness needs to be a condition for people's uh, acceptance in a community. And so that, that's, that, what is normal changes over time, but what defines normal is always a result of uh, a, the, the, the social construction of what it means to be so to speak, like everybody else. Is it easier to form communities if we have com conformity? Absolutely. Then uh, so it seems like the diversity is actually an extra effort to form in, in, on, on the way to form a community. And it's really hard to put people, harder to put people with different background together. Right, absolutely. So it is much more difficult to have a community with people who are different uh, but the philosophical literature in multiculturalism suggests that communities are better and stronger when they have communities of difference. So something being easy isn't necessarily what we ought to aim for. Um, just because it's difficult to have a diverse society doesn't mean it's something that we shouldn't value or something that we, we shouldn't want to do. And so I think that's where we get to the deeper level of why is diversity valuable? What do we gain from diversity? Um, and there we get the philosophical arguments about um, education, about tolerance, about learning um, that come all the way, you know, we can go all the way back to Aristotle for these arguments, but we also get these arguments from people like John Stuart Mill, who tell us that when we expose ourselves to different ideas and arguments in people, our values actually become stronger. We adopt the better ideas. Um, and so it really comes down to, and this is the heart of a lot of the political debates that happen in the United States around uh, diversity, immigration, um, um, multilingual uh, schools or cultures, is just how much diversity should we have or can we have in a community and still be called a community? Uh, Isn't so it the more the better? Uh, well, that's 
an interesting question. Um, and I'm not sure that anyone says the more the better. Um, I think that what people say are what kind, we, we ask the question, what kind of diversity is allowed? Um, what kind of diversity would be acceptable? So you, um, you may need a, a commitment to a common set of core values. Uh, certainly in a liberal society, you need a commitment to tolerance as a core value, where you're tolerating people who are different from you. In fact, that may be the only value that is required in a liberal society is tolerance. That you can believe the other person is going to hell, you can believe the other person is uh, the devil, you know, you can believe the other person is, uh, you know, a communist uh, who, you know, hates liberalism. But as long as you have a tolerance for those people to be in a society with you, um, then that, that may be the kind of the fundamental value of a liberal society. Um, but there may be other forms of uh, liberalism. Um, the, in fact, French liberalism, as an example, um, has a particularly intolerant uh, version of liberalism. Uh, the French do not allow public displays of religion at all. Uh, it's a very secular form of liberalism. Uh, so the French are much more likely to ban uh, certain types of clothing in public from religious minorities. The French are much more likely to ban religious displays in public. Now, we, we might say that that's a less tolerant version of liberalism, but it is aiming more toward a legacy of French nationalism, that the French want people to be French first and then belong to their particular community second. Um, so you're much more likely... Uh, so we, I, I do this exercise in class where I ask students to write down the identities that make them who they are. Um, so they could write down, you know, Christian, Muslim, Jewish. They could write down American, Wisconsinite, uh, brother, sister, uh, you know, anything that makes them them. Uh, and then what you put at the top of that list, if you were to rank order it, is something that you are feel closer to what your identity is. Um, and so you have some communities where what's at the top of the list um, is a much more coherent way of the way someone thinks about themselves. Um, and so if you took something like uh, to be French, being at the top of your list over being Christian, um, that would be something that French liberalism tends to aim for. Um, they want you to be French before you are other things. Um, I'm not sure that that's so true in the United States, where you uh, are probably your religious affiliation for many people before you are an American, um, or you are a member of your family or your community before you are an American, uh, or you believe in a set of values before you are an American. Um, and so I think that it, it's an interesting question about how communities are formed um, but there are many different values that could be uh, the center of uh, community finding something in common. So that, is it fair for me to say a community is more about a diversity of priorities under the umbrella of the agreement of uh, a common good defined by the community? Yes, it, it, it absolutely could be. I think the question is, could you have a community organized around multiple conceptions of the common good um, and this is, uh, this actually brings up another uh, philosopher that I could have mentioned before who's been very influential over the last 30 years. Um, and that's a philosopher named John Rawls, um, who wrote a book called The Theory of Justice back in the 70s, and then another influential book in the 90s called uh, Political Pluralism. Um, and uh, what Rawls suggests is that 
uh, what we have in a liberal society rather than a single common good is an overlapping consensus. So you imagine all these different groups in society with all their values and a set of those values overlap. And that's what we call the overlapping consensus. And so we have a society that's formed with commonality, not because we all believe the same things, but because there's an element of our values that overlap. And whatever that overlapping consensus is, is what the foundation for our society is. Um, in the case of a liberal society, one of the key elements of the overlapping consensus, like I talked about before, is tolerance. Um, so as long as all of those different groups share tolerance, you can have a common society. You can have a community. That's but there, are, there are, but there are people who argue that you can't have a community if you have a bunch of people who are different. You can't have a community if you don't have if you have people who believe something different in when it comes to religion. Um, and so that is really a debate that we get all the time in 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 politics, where people and make arguments that uh, your a, a culture is watered down if you allow too much immigration, for example, or. A community can't have values if you have a community full of diversity of values. Uh, so that really is uh, uh, an important part of the political debates that we have. This is the first time I hear about Rawls' opinion, which kind of makes sense to me because uh, when I do some algorithms, we want to design, we, when we do big data, right? Recommendations of advertisements or something like that. We want to design an algorithm which kind of give each individual a different preference which is basically not doable. So what we do instead is actually we, we design one algorithm for a group of people, say male, and then a group of people which are like age, young age or something like that. But then we kind of believe that an individual's identity is nothing but the intersection of seven groups. That actually what defines an individual. And surprisingly or not surprisingly, through mathematical theory, you can prove you don't need many groups to define all the six billion people on earth. You don't actually need that many groups. Because if you narrow it down to intersections, everybody is actually pretty, pretty unique. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's an interesting example. And I haven't thought of it in terms of big data. Um, but a, a similar argument that I make is that the outliers, the people who have what we might even call more radical beliefs about the failures of liberal society or the failures of um, the, the values that we have in common, those are much smaller numbers, but they get a lot of attention. Uh, so whose society is, is working for, or who we can, we, we can help by working through the mechanisms of society um, uh, as we can currently have it constructed, um, that, that kind of along the same lines of, of your answer, um, it doesn't take much to include everyone in it. I mean, we even have, you know, white supremacists marching down the street in, you know, in our towns, uh, you know, so, and, and liberalism still working. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, that our, our categories and our mechanisms are more robust sometimes than I think we give them credit for. Yeah, according to what you see, what I hear from you, I think liberal is actually really an interesting system, which can evolve by itself, which can adapt to changes and we, which is really, really great. But now, of course, when I see the practice of liberals uh, in real life, you see all these kind of social problems and political problems. I would really like to wait and see how this pandemic is going to work through and how many problems it is going to manifest during this uh, suffering and how people actually go, how the liberal system actually go and try to fix every single one of them. 
and evolve according to time. I'm really looking forward to see it. Now, I, at least I understand through the conversation that uh, theoretically, all these problems has a solution. That's really interesting to hear. Yeah, great. Yep. And, I run, can, uh, mm -hmm. and at least a process through which we can work out these solutions. Um, I think that something you said much uh, earlier in our conversation about Aristotle applies to liberalism. Um, it, it definitely has a set of values, but I think it's also a process. And so us working out solutions, even if they're only temporary solutions or compromises, um, that uh, it, it's, it's a process that we go through to address the problems that we face, um, maybe even more than it is a set of values. It's almost like a game rule, the rule, a rule of a game to keep the game going forever, right? Instead of a game which terminates somewhere, which is right. kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I run out of my questions. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation and thanks so much to, you know, give me a lecture on Batman. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know do you, if you ever write anything about Avengers, you know, especially Iron Man and Doctor yeah, Strange. Well, let me know. There's stuff coming out. So, yeah, I, I've got... Uh, plenty to talk about, but I, I, what's fun about this research too is that every time I watch a movie or uh, read a novel, um, watch a TV show, there's always these thoughts of, oh, here's, I see what they're doing here. I see what the, the political message is. I mean, even for that, right? People ask, ask this question, why do you learn philosophies? Why do you learn politics? I, like you watch the same movie, you got so much more. Oh yeah, right. Isn't that great? If you just the more you know, you the more you understand what they're doing in the in the movie, and eventually you understand how they make the movie and how they write the play, and that's that's the yeah. fun. That's that's where all the fun lies. Otherwise, you're just seeing pictures and people flying around, right. which is right. kind of okay exactly. for teenagers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it is that uh, I've been accused of ruining movies for people before, but um, I am always driven by the the question of what is motivating the characters. Like, why do they believe what they believe? What is driving them? And I'm always unsatisfied by a movie that doesn't do a good job of explaining why it is that characters are doing what they're doing. Because uh, like you said, that's just some random person flying around, you know, either killing people or not killing people. Uh, but uh, why, why is it that the, the characters value what they value? Um, I think that's what makes good stories. And so I think we are always looking for that in our, uh, movies and television shows, so I don't mind talking about it more um, in my classes and my research. I don't know, maybe later if you watch, you know, because I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of shows, uh, if you'd ever do Game of Thrones, let me know. And mm -hmm. also, have okay. you watched uh, V for Vended? V for yes. Vended? Do you like that movie? I've shown that movie in class. Um, so yes, I have talked about V for Vendetta. Um, I also have a, a, a lecture on horror films, the politics of horror films that I've given to students. Which, um, which film are you talking about? Politics in horror films? Well, the, I, the horror films, I, talk, I go through different genres of horror films. So there's a politics of zombie movies. There's a politics of <laughs> vampire movies. There's a politics of slasher movies. And they're all a different set of politics. Um, so maybe this could be a teaser for a future uh, podcast, but um, I definitely want to do it. I uh, already want to do it right now if you're not tired, but I know I need to stop recording right now to, to make sure <laughs> that you, you don't, you don't public promise me <laughs> you would do this. So I'm, I'm going to shut down the record right now, but then we can talk after this. <laughs>